everyone, you're listening to the second episode of What's the Crime with Grania and Gemma. So for this week's episode, I wanted to do an Irish true crime story. So Ireland is a relatively small country, obviously, and we do like to think that murder and crime doesn't really happen here. But obviously, unfortunately, it does. So this murder and trial was the first of its kind ever seen in Irish court and it was one of the most shocking crimes in Irish history. The relationship between the victim and the perpetrator was complex, to say the least. So today I'm going to tell you the story of Elaine O'Hara. I remember this one. I remember I was living in Galway at the time. My friend, who's also my housemate at the time, was obsessed with this story. Everybody was obsessed yeah. with this story. So Elaine O'Hara was born in Dublin in 1976. She had numerous mental health issues that were diagnosed since her teen. So she was um, regularly hospitalised for psychiatric care. She was diagnosed with depression and borderline personality disorder. And she would go through cycles of appearing relatively well and doing really good. And then unfortunately, she would end up back in the hospital. When her mother died in 2002, Elaine's family felt like she took it particularly bad and her mental health spiralled after that and she became increasingly anxious. However, by 2012, at the age of 36, her family believed she was doing increasingly better. She worked as a childcare assistant in Black Rock in Dublin and she was taking late night classes in Dunleary with the hopes of becoming a Montessori teacher. On the 23rd of August, Elaine was due to volunteer at the Tall Ships Festival, which I have never heard of. Have you? I haven't. I'm presuming it's in Dublin, is it? This was a three-day festival in Dublin that she was really excited for. So she had completed training on this and she was taking three days off work from her regular job. That morning, she had arranged a lift to the Tall Ships Festival with her father's partner, Sheila. So Elaine didn't show up for her lift that morning. So Sheila rang Elaine's father, Frank. He had a key to her apartment in Stepaside. He called to her house at 11am. Her phone was still in the charger and he assumed that she had left without it. He didn't attempt to contact her until that evening as he assumed that she had just found another way there that morning. But if you ever go to my house and my phone is still there and I haven't taken it with me, that's when you know something is wrong. Yes, because you were taking selfies every two minutes <laughs> and documenting your whole day, but carry on. So the following morning after she had not picked up her phone he began to get worried and he called Volunteer Ireland. They returned his call and they said that Elaine hadn't signed in on Thursday morning which is the first day that she was due to start and that's when he immediately started to panic. He rang his other daughter Anne and he asked her if she had seen her and when she said she didn't he said he was going to report it to the Gardaí. Anne had a feeling to check the cemetery where their mother was buried. So on checking the cemetery, this is where they find the first indication that something was really wrong. They find Elaine's car, except she was nowhere to be seen. They had to contact the AA to break into the car. And when they did, they find another phone inside the car. So they find this strange because obviously they had found her iPhone at her home on charge and they didn't know that she had any other phone. Okay. So... Obviously, straight away, they're really worried about her. And because she had expressed um, suicidal thoughts in the past and because the cemetery was located near cliffs, they were worried that she may have taken her own life on the cliffs. 
The Gardaí discovered that her last known sighting was by a jogger at 6.15pm in Shankill, Dublin, which was beside the cemetery on August 22nd. The jogger recognised her because she had stopped him and asked him for directions. He was able to pinpoint the exact time and the exact location because he was using an app on his phone called Map My Run, which we obviously have never heard of because we don't run. Don't run. I use that all the time. <laughs> but go ahead. So according to an article by the Irish Examiner, the jogger described her as distant and uninterested. He said that she was looking for directions towards a footbridge by the railway line. She did not say thank you for the directions and she seemed like she didn't want to engage in conversation. So you can see why they assumed that she wasn't in a good mind frame and that she may have taken her own life. Time passed and she just wasn't seen again. On the 10th of September 2013, this is a year, actually just over a year after Elaine's disappearance. Okay, so her poor family just had had nothing. They had nothing to go on. For that full year. Yeah. They obviously just came to the assumption that she'd taken her own life. And a year later, three fishermen were standing on a bridge over the Vartier Reservoir near Roundwood, County Wicklow. So the men obviously were fishing, they had an interest in fishing and they were paying close attention to the water because there was a heat wave in Ireland that year apparently. I don't remember this. (laughs) But the water had a normal depth of about 20 feet and it dropped to just two feet that summer. Right. They could see a shiny object in the water that caught their attention. It was a bag and inside it they found um, a length of rope and some handcuffs. So they kind of don't really know what to think of this. They leave the items on the wall and then they go home. But then they think about it and they're like, no, maybe we should report that. So the next day they decide to inform the Gardaí. Three days later after this at about 7.30 p.m., on September 13th, a professional dog trainer, Magali Vergnet, she was out walking her dogs on Killakee Mountain in Rathfarnham. So that's approximately about 20 kilometres away from the first discovery. Okay, so from the, what the fishermen found the bag? Yes. Okay. It's about 20 kilometres from that. One of the dogs ran into the undergrowth and refused to return. The woman went to retrieve the dog where she discovered a bone. So she contacted the landowner and brought him back to the area and they discovered a jawbone that they suspected was human remains and so they alerted the Gardaí. Okay. It's always a dog, isn't it? Love dogs, go ahead. Initially, the Gardaí could not identify the remains. The pathologist advised that they had probably been decomposing for about a year and due to the composition and the fact that they only found 65% of the skeleton, they weren't really able to determine a cause of death. However, they were able to use dental records and identify the woman and it was in fact Elaine O'Hara. So at this point, you know, they couldn't really say what happened to her or, you know, more importantly, if there was any foul play involved. However, three days later, again, after this, on September 16th, Garda James O'Donoghue went back to the scene where they found the previous items. So where they'd find the handcuffs and the rope that those fishermen okay. had found. They conducted several further searches and they found handcuffs, keys, a mask, a knife, and an inhaler, and a Dunn Stores loyalty card. So Garda O'Donoghue contacted Dunn Stores. He relayed the serial number of the loyalty card and asked for the identity of the owner. The next day, Dunn Stores contacted him to say it belonged to none other than Elaine O'Hara. Can I just say, how strange is that? Nothing for a year. And then 
Is this in the space of a week? Yes, literally in the space of a few days. So nothing happened for a year. And then it was just like a series of coincidences. So the fisherman found the bag, the lady and the dog found the bone, and now the Garda finds this. Yes. Okay. And that's not where it ends. At this point, the detectives in the investigation, they're obviously like, you know what? Something is wrong here. Yeah. And they decide to conduct a fingertip search of the reservoir bed and they find two mobile phones, two Nokias. Were they still switched on? <laughs> they actually are able to Full get battery. information out of them. <laughs> at this point, the phones have been lying at the bottom of the reservoir for about a year. And yes, they're Nokias, so... They're definitely still working. It fell to financial crimes analysts and officers from the Garda Computer Crimes Unit to examine both of the phones. They also examined her laptop and her iPhone, which they found in her apartment. Elaine's laptop and iPhone, right? Yeah. Hundreds of text messages were retrieved from the phones. Garda established that the two Nokias were in almost exclusive contact with each other. And they were able to retrieve deleted data from the phones. So they now believed one of the phones was used by Elaine O'Hara and they established that she had been in contact with an 083 number. And the content of the messages between her and this unknown number, they kind of formed the central plot of this investigation. These text messages painted a picture of her life and her activities in the months and years before her disappearance. They learned that she was in contact with an individual who expressed fantasies and desires related to engaging in acts of stabbing during sexual intercourse. A text between her and the 083 number on May 24th, 2011 referenced stabbing a sheep and wanting to, quote, do it to a woman next. So he's obviously, this person is dangerous. And a weird, a weird, yeah. yeah. He also told her in one text, quote, my urge to rape, stab, kill is huge. You have to help me control it or satisfy it, unquote. Right. (laughs) Red flags. The focus of this investigation now moved to kind of identifying who owned this 083 number. Um, One of the detectives kind of delved deeply into Elaine's online activity and found that she was a member of BDSM website alt.com. Through the website, she had been in contact with a number of men and the detectives obviously wanted to identify who these men were. Uh, The 083 number was saved in her iPhone under the name David and a search on her laptop also found that this person was saved as Graham's phone number. A text from this phone number on June 13, 2011 referenced a 15% pay cut and coming fifth in a flying competition. At this point, the detectives are like, okay, maybe this person is a pilot and they searched for leads on that basis. He's obviously, what, whoever this person is, is well off. Yes. I mean, it's not every day you just go and do flying competitions and come fifth. Yeah. So they searched the internet and they found a man named Graham Dwyer had come fifth in the East Coast Scale Championships. So this was the first time that this name was really mentioned in this investigation. It was entered into the Garda Pulse system and they found that Graham Dwyer had an address in Fox Rock, South Dublin, and he had lodged a complaint about a stolen bike from his office um, at Baggett Street. So what was he? What office? What did he do? He was an architect. Right. 
They would later learn that his salary had been cut by approximately 15% around the time that that message was sent from the 083 number. Okay, it's not looking good for him. Not looking good for him. So separately from this investigation, another analyst, she embarked on the analysis of the use of the phones. And she noticed that a lot of the texts to and from that Nokia phone occurred while it was in the Dublin 2 area from Monday to Friday. It also was used in the evenings in South County Dublin, although there was far fewer text messages during these times of the day. She also discovered that it was most frequently used at a cell site at ESB headquarters on Fitzwilliam Street in Dublin. Okay, so he's mainly texting at work and then... Yes. When he got home, so you're thinking he's married... Yes, exactly. So she's like, okay, this is significant. So that they want to identify someone with a home address in South County Dublin and a workplace on Baggett Street. She also established that on July 4th, 2012, the Nokia was used in Galway City. She starts searching through toll booths for a vehicle that went through the tolls on that date from Dublin to Galway with an owner registered to South County Dublin. And she found a vehicle that was registered to Graham Dwyer. It's becoming clear through the use of toll records and mobile phone top-ups and patterns of movement that this 083 number correlated exactly with Graham Dwyer's life and when he travelled to different parts of the country. I mean, this guy did not have any history of criminality. His background suggested nothing of note. So following further inquiries, the Gardaí established that 42-year-old Graham Dwyer was from Cork. He was married with children. He flew model aeroplanes as a hobby. And he was an established architect. So he studied architecture in Dublin and then he began dating fellow architect Gemma Healy. They wed in 2002 and then five years later they moved to Fox Rock. His architecture career took off and he started to work for A&D, Weikart and Partners Architects on Lower Baggett Street on the 2nd of July 2001. On the morning of October 17th, 2013, just five weeks after the discovery of the items in the reservoir, detectives led a team of more than 20 Gardaí in a raid of Dwyer's home in Kerrymount, Fox Rock. When he came to the door, they informed him that he was being arrested for the murder of Elaine O'Hara. You can imagine just how much satisfaction they got from being like, you're under arrest. And how much in shock he was. It was a year later. Yeah, he probably was thinking, I've got away with it. I've got away with it. The team of Gardaí spent the entire day searching the property. Computers, phones and cars were seized and they also went to his office on Baggett Street as well. Over the course of the following 24 hours, detectives carried out five interviews with their suspect. So initially, he even denied no one Elaine. He's like, no, I don't know who this is. I don't know what you're talking about. Then it's clear through footage, um, CCTV footage from her apartment of him leaving and entering over the course of a few months that he did know Elaine. So he's like, okay, I I did know her, but uh, we had no sexual relationship. Again, the detectives have irrefutable evidence. There is footage on Elaine's laptop of them having sexual intercourse. He later said, well, okay, we did have a sexual relationship, but I would never cut anybody. Detectives would later locate videos on his laptop of him cutting Elaine O'Hara during sex. So, again, not looking good for him here. No. He consistently denied being the user of the 083 number or the Nokia, um, but he couldn't explain the correlations between his life and the person sending the texts. 
The text messages revealed more about the two than they had ever told their loved ones. Their relationship was unlike any relationship ever seen in an Irish court. It will become to be known as the master-slave relationship. Their master-slave relationship dated back to 2007 when they met on Alt.com. This was a website for people with interests in bondage, domination, submission and masochism. Elaine used the website because of her personal interests and he used the website obviously just to find a vulnerable woman that... He was basically just preying. He yeah. was a predator, really. Mm -hmm. On the day of Elaine's disappearance, he spent the day as normal at work and at home, no sign that he was planning anything. He had mastered the art of the double life at this stage and he had set up separate profiles for him and his wife on their home computer so she would never log on and accidentally find the gross images and documents and stuff that he had viewed or he had written. He'd actually written this like weird violent fantasy about murdering a young woman um, called Darcy Day but he was actually in contact with a woman online in real life called Darcy Day so you wonder is that like was, was he actually going to go through with that? Right. By 2005, he had met women through Alt.com who were more um, amenable to his sexual desires, women that would let him use um, a knife on them. On August 21st, he told Elaine that she would be, quote, well bound and gagged and tied to a tree deep in the forest, unquote. He had threatened to kill her in the past and it sort of became like a theme in their relationship that he would tell her to find a woman for him to kill, otherwise he would have to stab her. And he would kind of constantly coax her back into the relationship by promising not to stab her. And then inevitably he would manage to reintroduce the knife into their sex life. At first it was only supposed to be one cut for punishment and then the wounds were multiple and he always got what he wanted. By 5pm on August 21st, Graham had taken delivery of a hunting knife at his office marked private and confidential. He said, I'm heading out to the spot now to double check. He was coming home from work when he sent that text, but he didn't go straight home. Instead, he drove up to Kilkee Mountain. So she obviously, like, is terrified of him. She sends him a message, quote, I'm just so scared. Did you know, sir? I'm scared of you. You have this hold over me that terrifies me, unquote. So she asked him not to mention killing for a while. And he said, that's fine, quote, Tonight's punishment will be like me pretending to do it for real, okay? Unquote. He said it was important to him that she feel it was real. Quote, every time I stab and strangle you, I want you to think this is it. And every time I let you live, you owe me your life and are grateful and worship me. X. X after that. I mean, I know. Like, I want, I mean, you're, you're grateful and worship me. Kiss. It's so creepy. Yeah. So she agreed. Now can we stop talking about it? It was shortly after 10 a.m. and Dwyer was texting from work. He left his home at the usual time and arrived at his office at 8.30 a.m. So this was just like a normal day for him. So she asked him, did he have any instructions for her? He told her to have a bath and to shave. Quote, no underwear, not even a bra. Loose clothes and footwear for a bit of mud. Make sure you are fed. Take painkillers at 5 p.m. So she's obviously worried about the pain afterward as well. And she reminds him that she has things to do on the Thursday because obviously she was committed to the Tall Ships Festival. Quote, you will have stab wounds. You know the drill. Last few didn't bleed, but these will, unquote. Oh, I hate him. I know. It's just 
so so creepy and she obviously doesn't want it no she does and she's vulnerable and he knows it yeah. and he is just completely manipulating her and yeah. i just feel so sorry for her anyway go ahead i know he texts her i want you to park at shangana cemetery at 5 30 p.m leave iphone at home just bring slave phone and keys you will get further instructions there unquote again she's like trying to put it off she asks him if they would still do it if it was raining and she's like oh but it's going to be cold he doesn't care he spends the afternoon at work he has his hunting knife and he is preparing to use it he also has this like horrible killing bag where he keeps like duct tape and knives and chloroform and all this creepy stuff and then shortly before 4 p.m that evening he texts her again he told her it's never as bad as you think it's going to be and then he added a smiley face the smile like i I can't handle this the smiley face makes it even worse it makes it worse at 4 23 p.m she responded quote yes it is sir he told her to enjoy being told what to do she said that's easier said than done she's like i don't want this again i am just this poor girl this quote's gonna make you sick quote just empty yourself and become nothing you're properly a piece of slave meat your only job is to serve unquote sick at 4 50 p.m she asks if she could bring socks and an inhaler and wondered when she'd be back she also said she hadn't had time to eat he tells her she should be back around eight and then he says it's more painful getting stabbed on an empty stomach suit yourself like what i know oh at 5.05 p.m., Elaine leaves her apartment for the last time. She left her iPhone behind and she drove out in her Fiat Punto and waved at her neighbour goodbye. At 17.39 p.m., half five that evening, he told her to cross the railway bridge into the next park near the cliffs. She couldn't find the railway bridge and this is when she stopped to ask that jogger for directions. And he gave her the directions. Remember he was saying she was like distant yeah. and un- uninterested? That's yeah. obviously why, because she knew... She, she see, it sounds to me like she is just petrified. And she almost knows what's ahead of her. Yeah. And she keeps asking, you know, I've got stuff to do she's tomorrow. She's putting it what off. What time will I be back? Yeah. She's, it's almost like she's suspicious herself mm. and she's scared. He sends her his last message at 6 p.m. Go down to the shore and wait. She did as she was told and there were no further instructions or texts from either phone. He switched his phone off at 6 p.m. and it did not turn back on until 9.15 p.m. Whatever happened, he drove to the shore where Elaine was waiting. She joined him in his car and they travelled together to kill the key mountain for the place that he had chosen for her aunt. So she had little with her except her clothes, her slave phone, her inhaler and her keys. He had what he needed. He had his killing bag, his knives, the sexual paraphernalia, cuffs, gags, mask. And then he did what he had been promising to do. Afterwards, he walked back to his car, filled it with the belongings that he would later jump in the reservoir and left her there on the mountain. It's so sad. I know. And sick. His trial began on January 22nd, 2015. He maintained that he had nothing to do with her death. His defense team argued that she had taken her own life, pointing to her previous mental health issues and her suicidal thoughts in the past. They said that there was no physical evidence that she had been murdered at all, as pathologists could not make a ruling about her cause of death. Thankfully, he was found guilty of Elaine's murder following a jury's unanimous verdict on March 27th, 2015, and he was sentenced to life in prison. 
However, he has actually tried to appeal his sentence on the laws of the data being breached by the use of the mobile phones. So basically that the text messages that were sent and received shouldn't have been accessible. Okay. Thankfully, again, the trial in this case, Mr. Tony Hunt, he was satisfied that there was lawful and appropriate access to the phone data. Thank God. Thank God, because that is really what put him behind bars, was the information that they got from the phones. Yeah. He's still behind bars. Uh, his wife has not visited him. I think she only visited him the once, and it's reported that that was just to sign papers. Divorce papers? I assume so. And also, which I read, which I find absolutely disgusting is that he actually gets love letters from like women all around the world like they see him as like he's some sort of a celebrity and that's just absolutely sick it's so wrong so due to a series of coincidences in such a short period in the year following elaine's disappearance thankfully graham dwyer was caught and will spend the rest of his life in prison but it makes you wonder if these coincidences had never happened would life be going on as normal for graham dwyer and more terrifying still, are there other people going about their daily lives as normal that have done the same thing but got away with it? Okay, guys, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in next week for a brand new episode of What's the Crime? And please like and subscribe. And also you can catch us on Instagram or Facebook at What's the Crime? Thanks for listening. Bye.